X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon. It's Wednesday, March 24th. Today, back in the day on March 24th, 1989, the oil tanker Exxon Valdez struck an Alaska reef, beginning the most environmentally destructive oil spill in history. The tanker unleashed 11 million gallons of crude oil into the Prince William Sound. The oil slick covered 1,300 miles of coastline and killed hundreds of thousands of seabirds, otters, seals, and whales. The spill also had a devastating effect on fisheries in the area and the economies of local towns. At the time of the spill, the captain of the tanker had been drinking and allowed an unlicensed crew member to steer. In March 1990, the captain was acquitted on felony charges. Instead, he was convicted of a single count of misdemeanor negligence and fined $50,000. Exxon paid $2 billion in cleanup costs and another $2 billion in habitat restoration. In response to the oil spill, Congress passed the 1990 Oil Pollution Act. It increased penalties for companies responsible for oil spills. To this day, nearly 30 years after the disaster, pockets of crude oil remain in the Prince William Sound. Today, back in the day on March 24, 1998, the first physician-assisted death happened in Oregon. Oregon voters first approved the Death with Dignity Act in November 1994. It was the first state in America to do so. The legal red tape prevented the law from being enacted until October 1997. The law allows terminally ill Oregonians to voluntarily end their life with the assistance of a physician. In the law's first year, 15 Oregonians elected to end their lives under the act. At this point, nine states have laws allowing medical aid in dying. Today, we'll start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with David F. Walker. X-Ray. First up, it's time for today's quick six local rundown. Floor sessions are canceled after a possible COVID-19 exposure in the Oregon House of Representatives. On Monday, House Speaker Tina Kotek said all action in the House would be delayed until March 29th at the earliest. She said, quote, someone who was interacting on the House floor last week has tested positive. A mass email went out on Monday afternoon notifying legislators and staffers of the possible exposure, which occurred on March 15th and 16th. This development comes during a legislative session that has shown partisan divides when it comes to pandemic reopening priorities. The same day that the possible exposure was announced, House Minority Leader Christine Drazen had sent a letter to Majority Leader Kotek outlining recommendations for a more streamlined session. This is a departure from Republicans' tactics so far during this legislative session. Republicans have been requiring that bills be read in full on the floor before any final vote. This could be seen as a way to slow the agenda of the Democrats, who have a legislative majority. Floor sessions are canceled during a quarantine period, but committee work, which was already being done virtually, will continue as scheduled. Your daily dose of data. The OHA reported 316 new cases of the coronavirus yesterday. There were two new deaths. What COVID-19 variants are present in Oregon? 
According to the OHA, during the month of March so far, Oregon recorded 17 cases of the B117 or UK strain and one case of the P1 or Brazil strain. And 13 Oregon counties are expanding vaccine access ahead of schedule. Those counties are Baker, Benton, Deschutes, Grant, Jefferson, Lake, Lincoln, Mallor, Marion, Morrow, Polk, Umatilla, and Union. Populations in Phase 1B, Group 6, can now be vaccinated in those areas. That includes agricultural and seafood workers, migrant and seasonal workers, people experiencing homelessness, people displaced by wildfires, wildland firefighters, pregnant women older than 16, adults aged 45 to 64 with underlying health conditions, and certain other vulnerable populations. Other Oregon counties are expected to enter Phase 1B, Group 6, on March 29th. Governor Kate Brown announced Oregon's 10-point economic recovery plan. The plan aims to help families and businesses across the state who were financially impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic and 2020 Oregon wildfires. Specific, emphasized focus will be placed on people of color. Brown revealed that Oregon is slated to receive $6.4 billion in funds from the newly passed federal COVID-19 stimulus package. Oregon had among the most strict pandemic restrictions in the nation. The state initially shut down in March and again closed businesses for weeks or months in November as cases surged. Oregon has paid $8 billion in unemployment benefits since the pandemic began. Between March and June 2020 alone, over 500,000 Oregonians claimed unemployment benefits causing long delays. Oregon also battled wildfires late last summer in the midst of the ongoing pandemic. Over 1 million acres burned and 4,000 homes were destroyed as the fires were fought and contained. Some Oregonians are still displaced as a result. Governor Brown announced the 10 points on her plan as follows. Investing in Oregon's hardest-hit workers, those currently unemployed or underemployed. Reinvesting in innovative housing. Supporting rural communities. Supporting Oregon's workforce that is currently employed but struggling. Creating workforce development opportunities for Oregonians. Getting small business back on its feet. Investing in Oregon's infrastructure. Oregonians investing in Oregon. Safely reopening Oregon's economy and innovation in manufacturing. Andrea Valderrama has been selected to fill Diego Hernandez's vacated house seat. Multnomah County Commissioners have chosen the policy director for the ACLU of Oregon to serve as a state lawmaker for East Portland in the state legislature. She will replace Diego Hernandez for the remainder of his term, which lasts through January of 2023. With the addition of Valderrama, women will hold the majority of the Oregon House of Representatives for the first time in its history. The House will be composed of 31 female representatives and 29 male representatives. Valderrama was voted into the role unanimously. Valderrama and Hernandez have formerly been in a relationship and subsequently Valderrama filed a restraining order against Hernandez, alleging domestic violence. The restraining order was later dismissed. 
Hernandez's workplace behavior was investigated, resulting in lawmakers voting that he violated House rules regarding sexual harassment and created a hostile work environment. Hernandez's resignation went into effect on March 15th. Oregon State University President F. King Alexander has resigned. His resignation was accepted yesterday and will go into effect on April 1st, until which time he will be on administrative leave. Alexander had been accused of mishandling complaints of sexual misconduct and harassment during his time as president of Louisiana State University. An investigation into LSU found that under Alexander's leadership, the school had an under-resourced Title IX office. Alexander had been accused of allowing LSU athletes and its then-football coach to evade consequences after multiple complaints of sexual misconduct were made against them. Last week, the OSU Board of Trustees voted to put Alexander on leave until June instead of firing him. This was followed by calls from OSU faculty and the public for Alexander to resign, which he has now done. The board accepted the terms of Alexander's resignation at a board meeting on Tuesday. Those terms include a lump sum payment of $670,000 plus coverage of medical and dental insurance costs for a year. At the meeting, Alexander said he was, quote, sorry for any of the survivors of sexual assault and misconduct that this has brought back any pain. The board will soon create a process for appointing an interim replacement. And finally, some good news. The number of coronavirus vaccines arriving at Oregon pharmacies has almost doubled in the last two weeks. 44,000 doses of COVID-19 vaccines will arrive at Oregon pharmacies this week, an increase from the 24,000 doses per week being sent out just two weeks ago. The rollout of vaccines is part of the Federal Retail Pharmacy Program. This program accounts for one-fifth of the 240,000 doses Oregon is receiving this week. Albertsons, Safeway, Costco, Walgreens, Health Mart, Rite Aid, Walmart, Fred Meyer, and CVS are all now participating in this program. The number of vaccine doses available to Oregonians is expected to continue growing as vaccine allotment continues to increase. The state is ramping up its vaccination programs in anticipation of possible forthcoming springtime COVID-19 surges. Recent analysis has shown that Oregon has administered fewer vaccine doses than other states in recent weeks. Eligible Oregonians can schedule vaccination appointments with their pharmacy as they become available. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. This is your weekly City Council update. Portland City Council spent the last few weeks getting into the weeds of the city's homelessness crisis. Last week, Council met with the Joint Office of Homeless Services, or JOHS, to discuss the proposed budget for the coming fiscal year. A home for everyone is the office's broad goal, but currently 4,185 adults in Portland have an unmet need for access to homeless services. The proposed budget is $77.5 million, a $4 million raise from the previous year, two of which are coming out of the Portland Police Bureau's budget. 
31% of their funding goes towards rapid rehousing, 21% for supportive housing, and 9% for diversion and employment. Commissioner Joanne Hardesty pointed out that much of the JOHS's services are focused on moving people inside, though the city lacks the space necessary to rehome all homeless people. The JOHS responded by explaining which programs they utilize to reduce the impact of homelessness, such as dispersing survival items, cleaning up trash, and offering hygiene services. They explained that this is part of their relationship with Central City Concern and Rapid Response BioClean, which the proposed budget aims to retain. On March 31st, Council will vote on the Shelter to Housing Continuum Project, which was discussed for nearly five hours last week. The project aims to provide more living options for the homeless population. Primarily, it permits temporary and permanent siting of shelters, establishing outdoor shelters as new community service use, more opportunities for group living, and allows occupancy of tiny houses on wheels and RVs. Many Portlanders came forward to express their thoughts on the matter. Some representatives were frustrated that housing is not yet considered a basic human right, while some are concerned that natural spaces could be turned into camps. Here's one community member speaking during the meeting. I'd like to strongly urge the passage of the Shelter to Housing Continuum proposal as written and with the proposed amendments by Portland Neighbors Welcome and the Social Justice Coalition co-signing in support. This is a real and large step towards providing more safe and stable housing for the unhoused population in Portland. This will help protect existing well-run shelters, promote the creation of new shelters to help address sanitation, access to services, and community safety. There's a large gap between the limited affordable housing we have in Portland today and living on the streets, a gap this project will help fill. I've personally experienced housing insecurity. I can vividly remember living in a single room with my family, struggling to make ends meet, but we had that room. We had that stable housing, imperfect as it was, and we got back on our feet. I don't know where I'd be today if that option wasn't available to us. This project is a chance to extend that same opportunity for stability to our houseless neighbors and help preserve some of the imperfect but desperately needed options that are out there today. Council also authorized the financing of two affordable housing buildings, which would host a combined 193 new affordable housing units. Council went on to finalize the settlement for the family of a black teenager who was shot and killed by police in 2017. Quanise Hayes was killed by Portland officer Andrew Hurst, who believed Hayes was armed. He was not. Additionally, Ashley Albee, the Hayes family attorney, stated that Quanise was compliant with officers, and that is an uncontested fact. City of Portland is settling the case for over $2 million. Here's Terrence Hayes, Quanise's uncle, speaking during the meeting. Um, uh, my family, it's interesting because I see people and they, they sympathetic looks, but their lives haven't changed. They don't fight for change. They don't do the work necessary for change. So that means nothing to me because at the end of the day, um, that officer is still um, involved in this community and still um, are putting people at risk that live in Portland. But again, I'm not surprised by all this. Um, I got to look at my kids every day and they will never know Quanise and um, they will never have an understanding of that loss. And that's our family's pain. And no matter what um, this, what you guys attempt to do, that's just a fact for us. Um, and so I just pray that amongst all this, that if this is what's necessary for my cousin to move forward with her babies and do something better, that no one can test this or use this as an opportunity to act like they care when historically they haven't. And when you look at the things they've done concerning the matter, they don't care. During the hearing, Stephen Hayes, Quanice's uncle, the family's representative for the case, told commissioners that he wished the officer had been wearing a body camera and that he'd like to see that required in Portland. Commissioner Joanne Harsey replied explaining that body cams don't increase accountability. She believes that for the investment required, ultimately the police will still be in control of what becomes public and that civilians filming officers is much more useful.
She told Stephen Hayes, quote, help is on the way, in reference to the new Portland Street Response and Independent Oversight Board. Among the other budget hearing work sessions commissioners attended included the proposal from the Office of Violence Prevention. The Office of Violence Prevention shared that homicides have increased by 50% in the last year. The office is asking for a budget of $1.6 million. The majority of the money added, $529,000, will go towards street-level outreach, another $206,000 for the Healing Hurt People program, and $244,000 for bringing on more caseworkers. That's it for your city council update. More information, including virtual meetings and agendas, can be found at portlandoregon.gov forward slash auditor. Author David F. Walker joins us now to discuss his new graphic novel, The Black Panther Party, a graphic novel history. He's going to be joined by superfan DJ Ambush. Why this format? Why now? And why it's required reading. Here are David and Ambush. When people hear the words uh, Black Panther and comics in the same sentence, they probably think of the fictional Wakanda and the Marvel movies. Our guest today has brought the real-life Black Panthers into comics, into the comics medium with his new book, The Black Panther Party, A Graphic Novel History. We welcome Eisner winner and winning Eisner award-winning author, filmmaker, educator, and PSU professor David F. Walker to the show. Good morning, sir. Good morning. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The listeners can't see it. I'm holding up David's book. Yeah. yeah they can't can see, see it. it. Yeah. It's in it, the the cut co- the color on the cover has got a nice contrast to the green you're wearing. Oh. Just, mm. I, I didn't even realize today was St. Patrick's Day. It was. And it just happened, right? Yeah, it just happened yeah. to me. So. Yeah. So how you been? I've been good. I've been good. It's um. You know, I'm I'm feeling here in town, here in Portland locally, it's just the weather has been almost good. It's still, you know, not <laughs> great. But yeah, so I'm just I, but the, the thing I, I, I'm reminding myself of is that last year we had a snowstorm right around this time. So I'm trying not to get too excited, you know, so. OK. <laughs> okay, that's a that's a callback. That's, that's, that's me. That's me. Glass is always going to be half empty, man. Always going to be half empty. Amazing. So you've written and produced all sorts of genres of comics um, and books and documentaries on black exploitation cinema. What made you want to do a graphic novel history of the Black Panthers? That's you know that's a really good question. Um, I, I more than anything, and this will sound really it might sound weird to some people, but <clears throat> I wanted the world to know who Fred Hampton was. Mm. Um, and and up until about a month or so ago, most people didn't know who Fred Hampton was. Um, but I also understood, and, and the editors that I was working with also understood that um, if you if you try to teach people who Fred Hampton was, they it, without the context of the Panthers, what the Panthers were all about, how the Panthers came to be, it would be it could potentially be an empty history lesson. And and I was more interested in a history lesson than just um you know just sort of satisfying my own needs because mm. uh for those people that don't know fred hampton was the the uh head of the illinois black panther party he was a personal hero of mine he was murdered in uh, uh he, he was murdered exactly two days after i turned one years old wow and um and i didn't find out who he was or hear of him ever until i was about 19 or 20 years old mm-hmm. and and at the time it just struck me that how could something that happened within my own personal lifetime be completely unknown to me and um and so that kind of put me on this on this quest 
and and fortunately there's a movie that has done an excellent job of, mm-hmm. of um i was just thinking that this morning i was like who would have thought there'd be a movie about fred hampton that would be nominated for an oscar for best picture i'm telling and, you you know it's kind of crazy so but that was it i just really when i discuss, when i really started learning about who the panthers were um one of the things that upset me was that i didn't already know and it felt like this was a lesson that I should have been taught in school. Right. And and so that was part of what really drove me to, to wanting to do a project like this. Did you uh, experience any uh, pushback or, you know, any uncertainty around the project as you were presenting it? No, no. I mean, I, I had a I have a good relationship with my publisher, 10 Speed Press. I had already done a book for them uh, earlier on the life of Frederick Douglass. So that seemed, it seemed almost okay. like a good natural fit. Like there was this this progression of, of some sort of, we could call a black empowerment theme. So they were they were totally cool with it. And, you know, the I'm trying to think if there was, there, it was, it was interesting because there were some books that I ordered at the time for research from Amazon mm. that never showed up. <laughs> and, and it was like, and that was the first time I've ever had issues with Amazon. And I got like crazy paranoid. And this was like uh, that. This was like about 2018 or so that this happened because I've been I, I was doing the research for a very long time on this book. Right. But we'll say it was about 2018 that this happened. And I was like, yo, something's going on here because it was it was only <laughs> books on the Panthers that I was getting from Amazon that weren't showing up. Wow. Um, and and, you know, I I. I in all honesty, I bought a bunch of books from Powell's too, uh, and from other independent booksellers. But this was like, this was the place where I, I found like three or four titles I needed, and so I got really paranoid for a little while. But mm-hmm. you know, that went away. So <laughs> that was that was the extent of of any type of pushback or anything. Okay. I mean, I've had, you know, there's been some people who who come out and said, you know, just the typical negative internet troll sort yeah. of thing. Man, I, I ain't got time for any of that. So I just, uh, I, I've developed a, a very thick skin over the years. <laughs> Those books never, ever showed up. No, no. I, I I had to go through the whole process of like these books. You know, there's there's a weird process on Amazon when something doesn't happen, uh-huh. when a product doesn't arrive or it's or it's broken. And then, then you start getting into like, it's like the wild, wild west world of like, um, can you can you actually get your money? in a Christmas present last year and it, it never showed up and I'm still trying to get my money back but oh. that was a that was one of those like second party vendor sort of things so anybody listening you know for all the reasons we nowadays we're talking about you should not do business with Amazon <laughs> also make sure that if you're doing business with them that you're not that you're doing business direct with them and not some some other vendor who uh, doesn't deliver your cousin's Christmas present in four months, three, four months later, you're still fighting with them over money. Um, which will let you all know, anyone listening, like I'm not rolling in cash because I, I wrote this book. So I'm still fighting with Amazon over like a $40 <laughs> gift. So, <laughs> Oh man. <laughs> so the book kind of gives more context to the Black Panther Party by covering their history of oppression in the U.S. Uh, from the treatment of slaves uh, to the Jim Crow South and the civil rights movements. How difficult was it to broaden the scope while still maintaining the focus on those 16 years that the Black Panther Party existed? 
it was you know that 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 you're talking about the opening section of the yeah. book and that was really it was it wasn't the, the difficult part was was like you said was narrowing it down to to that amount of mm-hmm. you know material because at, at one point it was probably twice as long so we're talking close to 40 maybe 50 pages and i was like yo i, I can't write a book about the black panther party and not really get into them you know until like 40 50 pages in so right. one of the decisions i really made was I, I i tried to pick like key things that i knew that i knew either made me incredibly mad or incredibly sad and 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 trying to contextualize it in like okay what's the sort of stuff that like back in 65 66 Huey Newton and Bobby Seale would be seen on the you know news every day or reading about in the newspapers every day um and and going actually going back like 10 15 years further so once i made that decision you know it was stuff like the the, the murder of Emmett Till mm. the the killings of Goodman Cheney Schwarner the the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church it was like those sort of things that i i feel like a lot of people have forgotten about or history lessons have, have ignored mm-hmm. um that that sort of became it became easier to make the decision it was like okay it's got to be the the historical context really needs to be tied into trauma and oppression specifically and and then i was i i decided to pick subjects that would be easy enough for someone to do research on their own so if they they read the book and they go oh who's medgar evers they can figure it out i wasn't trying to to pull out like mm-hmm. um like the sort of stuff that I that I sort of really enjoy historically because I really like digging deep. Um, but I also know, you know, like if, if like say a 14 year old reading it or even like a, a, a you know, 60 year old is reading it, not everybody's gonna wanna um, do that deep dive. So I, I tried to make make it as accessible as possible. That was a very long winded answer. I'm it was a great answer. It was a great answer. And, and it brought something else to mind. Like as you were doing all of this research and, and going over the history of oppression we've experienced here what was the emotional impact of that oh man it was brutal <laughs> i'm yeah. not gonna lie there was there was a couple key moments um i remember specifically when i was i was doing the research on both goodman cheney and schwarner for for those people that don't know they were uh three civil rights activists mm-hmm. uh, working voter registration who were murdered by the klan and um and emmett till as well and and the thing with emmett till was that it's it's almost impossible to do research on him without uh seeing pictures of his corpse yeah um and he he had been murdered as well when he was 15 years old so like every search i did every bit of information i was trying to pull up to get the details of his life and murder was accompanied with a picture of his corpse which was just Mm. that was almost impossible to deal with um but then goodman cheney and swarner were all really young you know, and and we forget about the fact that so many uh, people who were murdered in relation to the the civil rights movement were young. Even Martin Luther King Jr. was young. Right. You know, he wasn't even. I, I'd have to double check, but I don't even think he was forty yet, or he was barely forty. Um, and that's young. And so that was what really got me, and that carried over into the the Panthers. When when Fred Hampton was murdered, he was twenty one years old. When Bobby mm-hmm. Hutton was murdered. He was um, 17 years old, and and as as much as that was infuriating when I was in my 20s, when you get to be a middle-aged man, you start to realize, yo, these some of these people that were getting killed, 
they're old enough to be my child. You know, yeah. Emmett Till is old enough to be my kid. At this point in my life, Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner, all three of them were old enough to be my sons. Mm. And there's there for me there was there was something that clicked that was that made it really difficult you know to, to to write about these things and and the same thing happened with marcus marcus kwame anderson the artist uh who drew the book i i told him i said man if, if anything weird starts to happen to you emotionally or whatever just give me a call let's 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 you know we'll just we'll walk through this together and and he at one point reached out and he was like how did you do this mm. and i was like Hey man, I didn't do anything because you're the one who's got to draw this stuff, and that's when, you know, I felt like that was going to be really intense, and it. So that was that was the biggest thing, and there's there was days where, I just like I was like I can't work on this today, you know. Mm. I knew, because I broke the book into sections, and I was like, okay, there would be a day where I'm going to spend the next two three days really researching the murder of Bobby Hutton. I'm going to get as many of the details as possible, try to figure things out you know, try to figure out when Huey was accused of, of murdering uh, a police officer, John Fry, trying to figure out those details. <clears throat> and and that would require having as many as like five or six books open at the same time, being online and just, hmm. you know, constantly going back and, and reading over and over again. And, and like, I'm not cut out for that, you know, right. <laughs> I like to, I like to watch, you know, uh, old hip hop videos on on YouTube. That's 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 how I prefer to. I'll just watch Eric B and Rakim for hours on end, um, and and to to get into something this deep, which is necessary to do the job. Um, it it made me want to like do something really lighthearted for my next project, okay. which won't be lighthearted at all. So, <laughs> so uh, you teach in the Department of Comic Studies at PSU, mm-hmm. which. This is amazing. Department of Commerce. I didn't have this coming. <laughs> what would you want your students to take away from this piece? You know, I just the thing I always tell my students, and and I, I co-teach more often than not with my friend Brian Bendis, and and the, the one thing that we really push is is that um, you know inside each of us there's there's something that we want to say, something that we want to get out, and and that's our truth, and and you that's what you got to work to. You got to work to tell your truth. Um, and, and, and you have to complete your work. You know, that's one of the biggest things I see with, with my students is they, um, I remember being that age, you know, college age and, and easily frustrated because things weren't working out the way I wanted them to, or not being patient enough and mm. giving up. And, and I tell people, you know, the, the, the difference between the aspiring writer and the writer is that the aspiring writer has never finished anything. And and so that's it. You know, you just you have to you have to do the work. And this goes straight across the board. But in terms of comics and comic studies, it's just and this also goes straight across the board too. You there there's a truth. And and if if your truth is you have a Batman story you want to tell, then then you're never going to make it in the industry mm. because there there has to be more inside of you than the desire to tell a Batman story or an X-Men story. And and if you had told me that when I was say eighteen or nineteen, I wouldn't have understood it really. Mm. But um, you know, I, I feel more more passionately about the Black Panther Party uh, book that I've done and the Frederick Douglass book that I've done than all the work that I've done at Marvel, than all the work I've done at DC. And and I feel good about some of that work. You know, mm. it's, there's nothing that I hate. Um, but when I when I look at 
what I call my work for hire stuff versus the passion projects. The passion projects are the things that, you know, I'm pretty sure people are going to remember me for. Mm -hmm. I definitely get more emails. Uh, Black Panther Party book has been out since January, late January. And I think I've gotten more feedback on that than anything I wrote during my years at Marvel, mm. which I think says a ton, right? <laughs> that is awesome. Man, thank you so much for this morning. No, thank thank you. you so much for joining us. Uh, we're wrapping up our interview for anyone that just dropped in. The Eisner Award winning author, filmmaker, educator, and PSU professor, David F. Walker. Thank you for joining us, David. If you missed the interview, please head over, on over to the archives. Get the app, guys. You can check this out. You can catch it on the replay. We got to go, but I wish I had time to discuss Snyder Cut with you. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> Thanks a lot, man. Thank you. Have Be good and take care. You too. Thanks to David for joining The Local. And thanks to our lead writers for today's episode, Miranda Selinger and John Collier. And thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in just about 30 minutes. Thank you for subscribing and giving us a five-star review. We always appreciate you telling your friends and colleagues about us. So please spread the word. And thank you, Democracy. We'll talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.